Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. It's the Al Franken Podcast. We've got a great show today, uh, you know, for a change. And this is one that I'm especially excited about uh, because my guest is Jeffrey Canada, who is famous in education circles as the man who created an incredibly ambitious social experiment in Harlem and succeeded beyond anyone's uh, wildest expectations. Jeffrey Canada is the founder of the Harlem Children's Zone, and he has changed the lives of the children in Harlem who, when he got there, they were growing up in a war zone surrounded by crime and drugs and violence and uh, extreme poverty, broken families, abuse, neglect, addiction, you name it. And he did this by pretty much throwing everything at at these problems, from training prospective parents during pregnancy, uh, you know, to read to your baby, to your to your toddler, to your to your kids, providing early childhood education, creating the expectation that every child will go to college and graduate from college, uh, providing health care in school, including mental health both for the kids and, and their families. Continuous involvement of, of parents, after-school programs, sports, the arts, summer programs, fun, fun summer programs with food and, and food after school. And the results have been astounding. 97% high school graduation. That's the rate, 90% go to college. Now, President Obama was a huge fan of the uh, Harlem Children's Zone, and he and Education Secretary Arnie Duncan created Promised Neighborhoods, which would replicate the model that Canada developed in Harlem. I was a big supporter of the Promised Neighborhood program, and I fought in the Senate on the Health Committee in Health Education, Labor and Pension on the Education Committee, and was able to get funding for the North Side Achievement Zone here in Minneapolis, on the North Side, in a very poor, primarily African-American neighborhood here in Minneapolis. We have very, very wide disparities here in the Twin Cities. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, after 2010, Congress did not vote for the level of funding that uh, Obama had asked for. And by the way, if you if you care about deficits, elect a Democratic president. Because if we have a Republican president, Republicans in Congress suddenly don't care about deficits. But when we have a Democratic president, 
uh, every new program then has to be paid for. So I am pleased to have Jeffrey Canada here, and uh, this is going to be a good one for a change. Let's see, what can I say about Jeffrey other than I admire him tremendously? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> no, he is the founder of the Harlem Children's Zone, uh, which is pretty well-known among education circles and basically turned around education in in Harlem uh, for zero to college. Is that fair? That's correct. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's, that's what you did. There is this movie, Waiting for Superman, and basically he's Superman in the movie. <laughs> President Obama wanted to uh, adopt kind of exactly what you did in in Harlem and uh, started these uh, promised neighborhoods. And I was a big advocate for those. And uh, we have one here in Minneapolis. We've, we've, we're in Minneapolis. We've just arrived. Uh, we both came from, from New York today. And uh, thank you for joining us oh, here in Minnesota. I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be back. Thrilled to be with you, Al. And happy you invited me to be on your podcast, Richard. Well, I'm just thrilled. Okay, let, let's just go into uh, the history of the Harlem Children's Zone. 20 years ago, you started this thing? Yeah, yeah a, little, a little more than 20 years ago. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what the genesis was. When I got back to Harlem in 1983, coming from Boston, Harlem was a complete disaster. Open drug dealing on the streets, graffiti everywhere, filth all over. And from there, it actually got worse. By 85, 86, you had the crack epidemic going on. Uh, young people murdering one another. Uh, the city felt totally out of control. And the African-American communities like Harlem were literally falling down around the children. And I was running some programs, Alan. I thought they were pretty good, but I looked at some of the data of what was happening to our kids, and I realized that uh, we weren't doing enough. We weren't reaching enough kids. It was good what we were doing. People were excited about it, but the truth of the matter was we really weren't making much of a difference. Uh, what were you doing that we were doing you were after excited school? about? Yeah, we were doing after-school programs, okay. which were great. We were working yeah. with kids from 5 to 12, and we thought that was really terrific and <laughs> providing okay. some social services. And, we, you know, so you looked at the kids, and it looked great, and they looked like they were having fun. But I would run into these kids four or five years later and realize, hey, something happened, something went wrong. How did I miss that? Uh, the kids don't look so good after all. It was hard to deal with because when you give your life and your soul to something and you really think you're doing good and later you find out it wasn't so good, uh, it made me really have to step back and think, uh, we've got to do something more powerful than this. So the genesis was your realization that what you're doing was not just not sufficient. It just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. Uh, okay. In the end, it wasn't working. There, there, this was a time before people had the concept of cradle to career, right? Okay. Uh, we were working with kids we thought at the most important time in their life from 5 to 12, right? Ah, that's what we really? Thought. We thought that's it. If you get them then, they're going to be fine. If you can get them 5 and 
by 12, they'll be on the right trajectory. But, but hadn't Head Start, Head Start was around, what, 64? Yeah, yeah. And there has been ample evidence that Head Start works. The yep. kids who are in Head Start don't get left back a grade as much as the kids who don't, and that they graduate from high school more, the, the girls get pregnant less, yep. and kids who went to Head Start are more likely to go to college and complete college and less likely to go to prison. I mean, we knew that about We We knew that, and Head Start is a great program. We run a Head Start program. We think it's terrific, but you couldn't watch the slaughter I was seeing on the streets of Harlem week in and week out and think, oh, the it's, answer is head start. Yeah. This is what's going to do it. Right? See that 15-year-old with the gun over there? Uh, if we only could have got him in head start, it would have all been fine. The whole <laughs> thing was coming apart. The social fabric of our community was literally being shredded right in front of our eyes. And I realized that uh, this wasn't about a good program, which Head Start is. In these kinds of places, you had to do something more substantial uh, than just running a single program for young people. So you developed something that was cradle to career. What was the uh, inspiration or the understanding that said, you know what, we got to give prospective parents some training on that that's your baby academy yeah, that's that's our baby college a baby uh, college yeah, that's yeah. Our baby college well well look it, it, it was interesting because while this was going on marion wright edelman the the founder yeah. of the children's defense fund had launched something called the black community crusade for children the tagline for the crusade was that black children face the worst crisis since slavery we were talking about a cradle to prison pipeline mm-hmm. at that time and I was regional coordinator for it. And we started bringing in black intellectuals from all different disciplines, medicine, social work, arts, after school. And we were trying to figure out what's the right combination of things if you were really going to change a trajectory for our children. Uh, and it's through that process that I realized this wasn't about doing any one thing. People kept asking me out what's the most important time in a child's life, right? Yeah. And it, I mean, is it like when they're four? Is it like when they're eight? Is it like when they're teenagers? And the truth of the matter is, every parent knows this. It is every single year they're alive. The most important time in a child's life is today, right now. If they're 12, it's right now. If they're four, it's right now. Kids, I gave up they, on my kids just... <laughs> Uh, during puberty, I just said, <laughs> now I'm just going to ignore them. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that uh, all of us who've had kids going through puberty <laughs> realize why all of us wish we could just sort of, you know, have a, a, a grandparent or something take those kids for a few years. I wish actually my grandfather did take us for a few <laughs> years during that time. Oh, yeah, uh, it took you. <laughs> which, which mattered a lot. But it was through this work with the crusade that I began to really say, uh, we had to recreate in poor communities what middle-class families take for granted. And we're not doing anything in the zone today that a solidly middle, upper-middle-class family uh, is not doing for their kids, right? Uh, we're trying to get parents good uh, prenatal health care. Uh, we're trying to make sure they know all about brain development between zero to three. Uh, we're trying to make sure that that child enters a high-quality pre-K program, Head Start or other pre-K programs, 
And then we're just trying to make sure every year, starting in elementary school, every year that child is on a path leading them towards college. Uh, that's what the zone does. And we're doing it not just focusing on academics. We're looking at social services. We mm -hmm. want to make sure their families are doing well. Uh, we're looking at sports and recreation and arts. In other words, we're trying to give our kids a well-rounded, comprehensive set of supports in their life for their entire childhood to get them into college and then get them through college. That's hard to do if you talk about a middle-class family that, um, well, maybe both parents are working. It's hard. It's not easy no, for them either. That's right. But if you're talking about the population that you're, you're working with, you did have drug use. You yes. did have violence. Yes. You did have growing up just being in a dangerous neighborhood. You had all these adverse childhood experiences yes. that Paul Tuff wrote about in How Children Succeed yep. that we see in Indian country, that we see in neighborhoods like Harlem was. Yep. And uh, here in in Minneapolis, Northside Achievement Zone is in one such neighborhood. And it has become a, a promised neighborhood. So you're, you're talking about social workers. So you're, are you visiting the home? Are you bringing parents in? And very often we're talking about a single parent. Yeah. Uh, we're often talking about a single parent. And we're figuring out what are the obstacles in this parent's life. Uh, if it's substance abuse, we want to get them into treatment. Uh, if it's uh, mental health problems, we want to get them in to see um, mental health specialists. Uh, if it's domestic violence, we want to get them into a safe uh, environment because all of these uh, conditions that kids live under have a dramatic impact on their life and their ability to be successful. So part of this is... Especially uh, if you're piling one upon another. Well, that's what happens in these communities, right? Uh, you don't have just one issue. You end up having multiple issues. Yes. And poverty and, itself. And, and just this issue, my, my wife and I were talking about this today. Uh, people don't understand uh, how uh, soul-killing it is to uh, honestly not uh, have $15, uh, that you just don't, that something happens and you can't find $50 to pay that extra bill uh, to fix the only modes of transportation you have, and the anxiety that so many poor people live with every single day. Uh, their kid comes in and just says, I need to buy a notebook, and you honestly just don't have money for the notebook, uh, for the child. It is demoralizing. It is depressing. People live like this day in and day out, and it wears you down. And part of the issue with poverty is uh, it's not a temporary condition that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a week and then you're out of it or two months you're out of it. There are people who are growing up uh, struggling every single day to make it. And this child who needs so much attention and so much focus uh, they often don't have the psychic energy to give to that child uh, at the level that child needs that support. So, you know, Paul named the book he wrote after us, Paul Tuff, Whatever It Takes, because that's what we figured out. Uh, we've got to figure out what does it take to get this child from where they are to where we want them to be. 
And where do we want them to be? We want them to be on a trajectory heading into college and completing college. And then we're going to do whatever it takes us to make sure that kid gets there. If it's home visits, we're going to visit the home. If it's making sure the kid makes the medical appointments, we're going to do that. If it's getting their parent into drug treatment, we're going to do that. Uh, if it's making sure that they have after-school programs so they're not hanging on the street with the gangsters and getting involved with drugs, we're going to do that. Well, often what keeps a kid interested in school are those after-school yes, programs. Yes, they are. Uh, yes, know? they are. And I will tell you, how I am so frustrated because when, when it comes time to cutting budgets, Educators often say, we're going to have to keep the essential things, right, which is the sort of reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? We're going to keep those, and these other luxury things have to go. That's all the sports. That's all the arts. And I tell folks, maybe they knew kids who just woke up and said, boy, I want more algebra today, right? I can't wait to go to school. That wasn't how it was for me and my friends growing up. Uh, We loved the sports. We loved the arts. Uh, I know probably 15 or 20 percent of the kids who are in my school end up graduating because they're involved in a sports team and they have to have a minimum of 75 or they can't play. And you know also, what? you develop these things uh, called friends. Yes. You remember them? Yes. And, and, and here's the other thing. You have fun. And oh, people, that too. That too. And yeah. people want to know, want to know <laughs> why kids turn so quickly to drugs and alcohol is that we've removed all of the fun out of their life. Uh, and the one thing you have are these sort of role models for kids, uh, people called coaches who, you know, the, the great thing about a coach is not just they're teaching you a set of skills, how to dribble a basketball or that, but they're actually teaching you how to go through life, how to work hard, how to accept winning and how to accept losing. Uh, and at the same time, how to work as a team, uh, which are skills that are so critical when you get into the labor market. Oh, man. Employers, that's what they want. They want yes, people they who can work in teams, people right. who are creative. That's right. Gee, that's right. maybe we should do some creative stuff. <laughs> you know, the best way to learn a language, immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, 
where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. And, okay, so we, we, we've kind of been leading up to this. It sounds like we're tr- this is what your theory is. Yeah, <laughs> and this is my theory. How is it, is it turned out okay? We've been at this now for 20 years, and it's one of the things I tell folk. Uh, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Now we've got about 960 of our kids who are in college. Uh, and we've got our pipeline set. I know how many children come into the early part of the pipeline in baby college, how many in our elementary programs, middle school programs, high school programs, college programs, and those who are graduating. So we feel like right now we've got other data. In our school, there is no achievement gap. Our kids outperform white kids in New York State in reading and math on the Common Core. So this idea that Harlem and the kids that... Now, are you cherry-picking kids? Uh, Yeah, this is is one of the uh, issues that people have raised about uh, our schools and other schools. Uh, But uh, Roland Fryer, the economist from Harvard, did a study on our uh, schools. And he actually demonstrated our kids are actually more disadvantaged than the average kids in Harlem. Uh, so we intentionally... That's hard to uh, do, I it, mean, to get well, a cohort. It, here's how, one of the ways we do it. Uh, we have two uh, schools. One of our schools, we built a brand new school right in the middle of the largest housing project in our zone. And those kids get to come to our school. They have top priority over anybody else coming in our school. So we want the kids from the projects to be in our school. And if you look at the data on the kids in the projects, they have the worst outcomes of any of the kids in Harlem. So these are the kids that even in Harlem where kids were struggling, these kids were at the bottom. They're the ones who are getting out of school quick and, and easiest. That's why we can make the statement, and you, the, the facts bear it out, that our kids, even our Harlem kids, our kids in our school are slightly, not tremendously, but slightly more disadvantaged than the kids in Harlem. Uh, this is not cherry picking. Uh, it's yes. 20 years of hard work trying to get this thing right. And I will tell you this. Um, we didn't have it right at the beginning. And it's one of the things that Paul Tuff wrote about. Uh, we were fighting. Paul Tuff try- is this very, very well-respected yeah. writer on writer. education. Just yes. so our, our, the and, uh, listener knows. And he wrote about our struggles and how we were trying to make this thing work. And it took us a while to actually figure it all out and get it to work. Uh, but I feel like it's working well right now. We still by no means are perfect. There's still stuff we have to get better at. Does any of this now get complicated by the fact that Harlem is gentrified? Oh, yeah. It, it's yeah. made it very complicated. If there was one major mistake that I made, Uh, when we started this project 20 years ago, uh, it was that we did not buy a property in Harlem when no one wanted it. Uh, 20 years ago, Al, it's hard to believe, but they were actually giving away the real estate in Harlem because nobody wanted to live there, uh, and the city owned about a third of all the buildings, and they no one wanted to live in the buildings. They couldn't make the rent rolls, and at that time, uh, Giuliani was mayor, and he just said, look, we, the city doesn't want these buildings. If you want one, raise your hand. Uh, and nobody wanted them because they thought Harlem would never come back. Uh, now those same places 
uh, going for a million dollars and some of the rest of the stuff. Uh, the, the bad part of our work was that we didn't anticipate how quickly Harlem was going to gentrify. Are you uh, part of the reason is gentrifying? Uh, yeah, we, we absolutely were part of the reason Harlem gentrified. And I thought it would happen. I just thought it would happen five years later than it actually happened. It happened so quickly before we knew it. It was like, oh, my goodness, look what's going on. The rents have gotten so high and so expensive. Uh, it's almost impossible for working class people to live in this community. If I could have raised a bunch of money to have uh, bought buildings in Harlem, uh, I would have uh, allowed those buildings to become places where our returning college graduates could get their first starter Mm -hmm. apartments, right? Like a little efficiency apartment. So now we're getting these kids graduating every year from college. Uh, Harlem has is so expensive uh, that it's going to be very hard for kids, even with a college degree, to be able to afford. So uh, what does that uh, mean for the cohort of kids that are entering school now? And Yeah. So, so people often wonder, well, Jeff, are there still poor kids in Harlem? <laughs> yeah. There are a whole bunch of them, and they're in the traditional public schools. Uh, if you look at the public schools in Harlem, uh, they're all uh, filled with kids of color who are poor. Uh, folks who have brought those million-dollar apartments aren't sending those kids to public schools. They're sending their kids to private schools. So we still have plenty of work to do there. Uh, but I think the lesson that we have learned and, and what I tell people around the country who is interested in this work uh, is that you have to plan on success. And what success looks like in a lot of places, it's folks from the outside deciding to come into the community uh, because it's really a cool thing now to live in a place that has this reputation, right? It's Harlem. I live in Harlem. That used to be something that drove people away. Now it's something that people sort of have a you know, sense of pride. Yeah, I, I brought me a place in Harlem now. We should have just made sure that the residents benefited more so than they did. Now, a bunch of folks at our suggestion actually organized, created co-ops, and bought their apartments. You could buy your own apartment for $250. And we had hundreds of people who did that. And when Harlem changed, uh, they were able to sell those apartments, and they made uh, you know, a lot of money, a lot of them moved to the South, and, and that was great for them. So you could sell your place in Harlem for, you know, $250,000 and move back to Georgia and get oh, you I a see. nice place, right? The cost of living is much lower, and you can just uh, use oh, I that see. Money So you meant down South. I really meant downtown. I meant down South, yeah. I just want to interrupt you for a second, because yeah. what we're talking about is a tremendous success if you talk about graduation rates. Yep. I mean, you can give me some of the stats, but I, the premise of what I'm going to ask here is there are some folks that say this is hard to replicate. Yep. And and that's what the promised neighborhoods were all about. That's yep. what uh, Obama and Arnie Duncan yep. were doing, right? So a lot of them say, well, you had the Harlem Children's Zone had a number of advantages if you want to say that harlem when you started had a certain but one of them was you they say that you can't replicate jeffrey canada right yeah and 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 i just don't yeah. want you to just get modest somehow right now now i see that you weren't going to be modest <laughs> okay so anyway but uh they also say that that wall street you've had some benefactors yep. those seem to be 
two of the yeah. big factors yeah. people point to. Yeah. And now we've had these promised neighborhoods for four, five, six years. And they're pointing to them saying, oh, well, we're not getting the same kind of results. But it took you longer so, than four or five or six years. Great questions. This, this, this is the sequence. First, when I first began this work, people said it couldn't be done. You just couldn't turn around a place like Harlem and create a safe, uh, clean, wholesome environment for folk. So then after we did it, they said, well, you're the only one who could do it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right. I was like, well, yeah. And then they were like, because the conditions can't be replicated. Uh, when President Obama just said he was going to replicate our work, if you hear his original announcement, he talked about at least a billion dollars. He said, we're going to have to spend at least a billion dollars. He never got anything close to that. So the promised neighborhoods that were started were started without sufficient capital behind them, uh, without a sufficient time frame for them to really work. Uh, and I think from the very beginning, the effort was handicapped. Uh, yet there still are places. Uh, and one of the reasons, as you know, I'm here is that the Northside Achievement Zone uh, was the most closely replicated effort that we had seen from Promise Neighborhood. So when people ask me around the country, uh, who else has something on the ground that you would say, go look at? Uh, there were three places that I would mention. The first place I would mention was the Minneapolis Northside Achievement Zone. Uh, what Sandra Samuels is doing uh, here in Minneapolis, uh, I think put to rest that idea that no one else could do this. Uh, one of the challenges is, right, we did have Wall Street money supporting our work, but we never had any public funding for this in the way uh, I think the Promised Neighborhoods gave some federal dollars for this. Yeah, I um, fought for federal dollars yes, for yes, NAS. And, yes, you did, and quite successfully. Here's the other thing, though. People thought, well, yeah, you've got all of that Wall Street money. And I would say to folks, this is about a vision and about a group of folk who care enough about their community that they realize by disinvesting in these communities, you actually are hurting your city. Any city that has these real pockets of poverty that we spend a fortune on, the tax revenues from Harlem were always negative, meaning we were always paying more in special ed and mental health and emergency rooms and jails and prisons and probation than people were paying in taxes because we didn't have enough people working. The benefit of this work is you actually turn that around. You go to Harlem today, we are a whole bunch of folk who are paying taxes, are supporting their community, supporting New York City, supporting this state. This is something that uh, we don't ever really talk about, Al. I know one of our kids who's in jail, 13,000 kids. I know one. Uh, if you looked at just the data, if you looked at the kids between 17 and 25 uh, and the numbers, you'd probably figure there was maybe 200 kids, 250. Who, uh, this is absolutely the antidote to all of those kinds of uh, negative trajectories kids are on when they don't have hope. They don't feel like they and, have And hope. that kid is in for securities fraud. <laughs> That's what, well, <laughs> I, I, I I'm will, sorry. I will, well, it's, 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 a, it's a good line. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, though, but, but it reminded me, this is a, it's a true story. Uh, one of uh, the people who 
was a critic of ours, came to me one day. They were livid. They were like, Jeff, you think your program's so great up at County Cullen, which is one of the toughest areas we're working in. He said, those kids up there are trying to figure out, and they figured out a way to cheat on their timesheets. I said, oh, so instead of selling drugs, our kids are now doing white collar crime. That's where they are right now, right? So he didn't think it was funny. He didn't, uh, but, huh? But I was just trying to Come make on. the point. So they had no sense of humor in addition <laughs> okay. oh, you know, it, being it, a it, dick. It's funny because folks don't quite understand how seductive the life of hustling and crime is to kids who believe they have no future. When they mm-hmm. look at it, they just don't see any way. I'm never going to make a living working. I'm never going to get a decent job. I'm never going to be able to afford a house or a car or any of the rest of and that I'm stuff. I'm a sucker for uh, not doing. I'm going to hustle. I've got courage. I've got some skills. This is how I'm going to make some money. And that has led to so many of our kids destroying their lives and the gang scene uh, in our communities. Kids who are going to college, they don't get involved in that. So, so what, what percentage of your kids graduate? What percentage of your kids uh, go to college? Uh, we have about 97, 98% of our kids who graduate high school and out of that graduating group, about 90% headed to college. And it's unusual for one of our kids not to go to college. And it's almost unheard of for them not to actually graduate high school. We don't even count graduating high school as an outcome because we assume all of our kids are going to graduate. And if they haven't, then that person is probably Whoever was mentoring that child and supporting that child is probably not going to have a job with us the next year uh, if their kids aren't graduating high school. That's a minimum threshold for us uh, and uh, not the ceiling where we're trying to get our kids through college. That's obviously extraordinary. But in trying to replicate that here in the Northside Achievement Zone, elsewhere, with these promised neighborhoods, and by the way, I remember fighting in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee for Promised Neighborhoods, and we had a senator, I won't say his name, who had an amendment to the bill to get rid of that, to get rid of Promised Neighborhoods, and he said a really stupid thing, (laughs) which is so rare uh, in the Senate, and he said, uh, this is a cradle to career. You know, we're all in our careers, so that means... Really cradle to retirement. I went, no, no, they meant starting your career. Starting your career, it does mean And I just, oh, my God. But, but you know, we've got these these issues, and and, and I think you've you've pointed out one of the challenges. If you looked at our results 10 years in, you just said, oh, it's kind of good, but it's not all that great. It took us 12 to 14 years to really master this and get that cohort far enough along so that we could begin to reap some of those benefits. Uh, And one of the things I have told folks is this is a generational strategy. This is not something we're going to work with kids for five years and it's all going to be good. You've got to be prepared to put in 20 years to really get the kind of results we're talking about. I would say that every city is different. Minneapolis and St. Paul have some of the greatest disparities in the country between whites and African-Americans. This is a theory I have, and I say it, and it sounds pretty, pretty good, but I, want, I, just, <laughs> I haven't run this by you ever, right. is that uh, in the Great Migration North, that 
cities like Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland got a critical mass of African Americans come from the South. Minneapolis, St. Paul, not so much. And I think that part of the reason, I think it's Minneapolis, St. Paul, a great metropolitan area, but this is an actual bad spot, a bad blemish on our community. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because when I travel to some places that actually are, I would say, worse. I mean, you mentioned Chicago. Um, There are areas in Chicago, yeah. There's some places in Chicago that's just really horrible for people of color, particularly African-American men and boys. What's happening here, Al, in my opinion, uh, is that there just hasn't been a sufficiently sophisticated plan that deals with scale. It's one of the reasons that we decided that we wanted to do 10,000 and walked into 13,000 kids. kids in, in Harlem. In Harlem. Kids do what their friends do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you deal with 20 kids and they leave your school and they go in the neighborhood, guess what they're going to be doing? They're going to be going whatever anybody else is doing. We wanted to reach enough kids so that... Everybody's talking about going to college. If you're 17 and you're in our zone, you're talking about going to college. You're talking with your friends. You're talking with their parents. You're talking with everybody's talking about. What are you, you thinking about going to college? What's going on in college? So the culture uh, becomes one where college is a norm, right? Uh, 20 years ago, college was was so abnormal, right, that no one knew anybody who was going to college from Harlem. It was like almost unheard of. In fact, it was a kid who went to the Ivy League and ended up on the front of the Times Magazine. Hey, a kid from Harlem. He was at one of those Ivy League schools. They thought that was so terrific. I remember that, yeah. It was so rare. Uh, you know, we sent just four of our kids this year off to Ivy League schools, and other folks are doing similar things where it's no longer such a big deal. You have places where the culture that kids are growing up in are just totally toxic, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about... Getting high, uh, hustling, shooting guns, having sex, all of that. That becomes the dominant theme where education and career and other things are really way, way, way uh, down on uh, sort of your uh, list of things that you're thinking about, talking about, acting on. Uh, We've got to change those cultures, and you can only do it by getting the scale. And if you have a small group of kids who are doing something great, that's going to be good for them, but it's not going to change that community. It's not going to change that culture. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Well, 
when you start talking about our just our country, our nation, and the wealth disparities and education, if you're in certain neighborhoods, your education is paid for by the property taxes. Yeah. If you're on the North Shore of Chicago, <laughs> yeah. they're going to have an you know, a beautiful school. They're going to be one of the most beautiful, well-equipped schools in in the country. If you're in a poor neighborhood, that's not the case. Now, isn't that a basic part of perpetuating the uh, income and wealth gap, uh, inequality? It, It is. It's too much about zip code and what zip code you're born into. Uh, that uh, really predicts pretty dramatically uh, your future outcomes, your future earnings. That is, to me, a shame uh, in this country uh, because certain people get trapped in these zip codes. They kind of become almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're in that zip code, you don't think you're going to make it. You don't work as hard. You kind of figure, "Eh, look, you know, I don't know any way out of this thing. You don't know anybody who's gotten out of it. And so it leads you to believe uh, there's no way for you to necessarily make it. And and when adults start feeling that way, that gets transferred on to their children, and it just goes on and on. Schools are part of the antidote, but it's, the schools by themselves are not sufficient in these kind of communities to get this job done. Uh, I'm a big believer in holding schools accountable, right? Uh, teachers have to be served. Principals have to be served. People have to do their job. They have to make sure that there's high-quality learning going on. But the science of what's happening to these young brains, starting at birth, is really, really clear. And kids who've experienced these really negative uh, and toxic experiences in their life, it has an impact. Adverse childhood experiences. It really has an impact on kids. And and you pile one upon another, it is predictive of how a kid will do. So I'm, I'm a teacher. I've got 27 kids in my class. Six of them are reading on grade level. Uh, Half the class is two years behind. uh, And I'm given the same curriculum that I'm supposed to teach at the same pace. Uh, This other person growing up in one of these other zip codes where everybody comes in on grade level. Uh, They've not faced any of these adverse experiences in their life. Uh, They uh, have no problem uh, finding uh, safe places to study and to play. They're not thinking about getting hurt or shot or killed or jumped after school. Uh, their parents provide support after school, so they're not left alone. And in the summer, and they have uh, they go to camp. They go, they go to space camp. Absolutely, they no. go to a coding camp. I, they, I, <laughs> I mean, I, that's an advantage. It, it is a huge because advantage. kids lose yeah. over the summer. Yes, yes. kids. Kid, that summer melt for kids where, where they actually end up in June with one place and they're lower in September has been something we've known uh, for, uh, you know, since I was in graduate school back in the 70s that this was going on. Uh, and yet our system, right, our education system ignores that, right? It doesn't say. Do you, do you have uh, these kids go to school in summer? All summer. All summer. All summer. We have formal school, and then we have uh, what we call summer camp, which is all the sports and the fun, but all of it has an academic component. 
uh, because our kids need additional time to catch up, right? They're behind. If the kid's behind, you've got to give them more time on task if they're going to catch up. And that's what we're trying to do. There's no way you're going to get a kid who comes from a, a poor background where their parents haven't had the formal education of other parents to compete when these one kids, you know what it's like. Al, you've got kids and grandkids. The way we talk to our kids, how we share stuff with them. Oh. Uh, this is not just a- what. What is the statistic about a kid who's grown up in a home, like a professional a home where their parents are professionals, and a kid who grows up in a in a home where they aren't high school graduates or just? Ha- is it thirty million yeah, words? It's, it's, is that it's, the number? It's thirty million words a difference between that kid who's poor versus that kid who's growing up in a middle class neighborhood. By 30 million words, it isn't just words like portfolio and equestrian. It could be the. Yes. <laughs> I yes. mean, it's- it is communicating with kids, right? So that they get used to having their world explained to them, yep. right? Uh, so I, I would tell my parents, anyone who's ever had a two-year-old knows that uh, that kid will look at you at some point and look you right in the eye and dump that glass of water on the floor. And poor parents often take that as an, an affront. What are you doing? Give me that glass. Let me do that. Class parents, look what you've done. Oh, now we've got to go and get something. We've got to clean that up because you know you've made a mess and we can't have messes. So you're going to help daddy. We're going to go, right? So you're doing all of this explaining, but more importantly, you're not shutting that brain down. You're not sending that kid into a shock state. You're not telling them, don't you ever do anything again without permission or I'm going to yell at you. Right. So you've got this whole different sort of serve and response going between parent and child in some areas. And in the other area, you just have parents who believe a good kid is a quiet kid, kid who sits there and watches TV and doesn't bother you. That's what a good kid looks like. And those kids who constantly question you and ask you stuff and say, how come I have to do it? Now, that's a bad kid. You have to shut that down. Well, guess what all the science says? That's absolutely wrong. Those brains need to be encouraged to question. And yes, question us as adults and parents. And then we need to explain to them and have them negotiate. All of that is just the science we're trying to teach our parents, right, in baby college, that this is really and good And you have stuff. to understand that their parents didn't do yes, that with them. And no. so this is There's generational. There's no science to this, Al. But I'm going to say this. I think there's a reason. If you were African-American in my mother's time, right? My mother's 90. I'm 67. If you were African-American raising a child, the way you got a job was by being quiet, subservient, listening, questioning nobody, because that was the relationship African-Americans had with the economy. So getting your kid to ask no questions, to shut up, to sit there and do uh, what they were told seemed to be a good strategy for getting that kid a job later on in life because African-Americans were so, uh, I think, discriminated against that anyone who seemed at all uppity or anything else, you just got no shot at a job at all. So what turned out to be a fairly successful strategy in raising a kid to fit into a society which was so harsh in its judgment uh, that they wouldn't allow you to be intellectual, smart, to talk back to question. Now times have changed you need kids who can have that set of skills, but for generations, people were raising their kids differently. These generations upon generations upon generations, there is a legacy yeah. 
I mean, we're acknowledging the, what is it, 400th anniversary Mm -hmm. of slavery in this country. And the unbelievable cruelty and savagery of slavery. And there's no question that there's a legacy and there's no question that some people have transcended it tremendously. But we're a country that has to face this. And the, the worst thing we can do is say, well, I'm sorry, but your education is funded by your property taxes and you just happen to be poor. You're really poor. And <laughs> so uh, you're going to go to a shitty school and the teachers aren't going to be at, at your shitty school, aren't going to be paid enough. And then there's going to be no after school programs yeah. and you'll go home to nobody because they got to work. They got to work. That's just the way it has to be. We have to, as a nation, go, no, no. Did I just sum up American history? I I mean, (laughs) I mean, I think I think that there is this belief, right, that the playing field is level now. Right. Look, all that stuff is over with. Everybody's good. You know, let's Mm -hmm. go. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's the furthest thing from the truth. There are these uh, legacy deficiencies around uh, wealth, uh, around opportunity, around college access, uh, around uh, ability to get loans, uh, around the ability to own property. All of these things. Internships. Kind of internships. Everywhere I think you look in this country, you see vestiges. Sometimes you see the actual things still existing of what has been barriers to equal opportunity in this country. And you know what? I think people feel like, oh, you're blaming me. I didn't do it. This is not blaming anybody for anything. This hey, is just admitting. my family came from Russia <laughs> in the 1890s. It ain't our fault. And I, I, think, I think a lot of folks feel like either you're crying, right, because you don't want to work hard and you don't want to do like everybody else did, uh, or you're blaming somebody. Uh, I think that you know, there's no one who can look at the plight of Native Americans in this country oh and Lord. say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, they got a fair deal. I don't know why there would be any problems there. Yeah, that genocide wasn't yeah. complete. I mean, come on. <laughs> so, why haven't they sort of fixed this thing? I think it's been in many ways as difficult for folks to look at the history of African Americans uh, in this country. Uh, you mentioned the brutality, the slavery, the torture. Uh, the actual terrorism uh, that became a daily part of the life and still is part of everyone's fear. Uh, I remind folk, uh, my wife and I have a 21, we have grown kids uh, who are in their late 40s, uh, and we have this 21-year-old. Every time he takes our car out, we're just like happy to know he's come back and everything's fine. Just can't help it. He's an African-American kid. He's in a car. He's 21. And, we were, and we've gone over the whole police drill. What is a drill? It is, you know, not to reach. For when, when I you're don't stopped, reach for your license. Keep your hands on that wheel. Mm-hmm. Say, officer, I have my insurance card and my registration in my glove compartment. May I get it? 
And when they tell you you can, then you're to open it with one hand slowly and bring it out and raise it up so they can see what you have because there's this fear that this could be the last moment this kid lives. Now, what, what a crazy world it is. My son's going out to a club. We all worried. What kind of club is it? Where's the club? I was, but my biggest fear is that he has an accidental run-in with a police officer, and maybe it ends up with them taking his life. Now, that is, that's just an African-American thing. I don't know a parent who's raised a boy who's African-American who hasn't had to have this conversation. That's from hundreds of years, right, of a history of this country that we're still dealing with. Even my wife and I, we're solidly upper middle class. This is not like, we don't live in the hood. This is not one of those things. It's just part of the legacy of this country. And it's something that we've got to grapple with. We've got to deal with uh, because you know what? We can. There is no reason Mm -hmm. right now that in this country, we can't confront those kind of things and say, look, we can do better than this. We can fix this. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do did you want to cover anything outside of education? There's one area, Al, that I feel like this country has gone backwards. Uh, my first book I wrote uh, was about handgun violence. I was talking about the handgun violence in inner cities, America, called Fistic Knife Gun. And, and I was trying to send a message to America. This thing is not going to stay in the hood. This gun thing is totally out of control. And I was arguing against the NRA. This is back in the mid-90s. And I was saying that this organization, uh, which most Americans don't support their most radical positions, uh, is going to uh, push this to the point where our kids are going to be murdered uh, on a regular basis. And in 95, that was just happening in a few places. Uh, It was Paducah, uh, which had this happen, uh, and a couple of other places around the country that had these school shootings. Today, we've created a culture in this country that every single community that I know has these uh, drills where they teach kids what to do when someone from your community is coming in to murder you. This should be unconscionable for this country. And we've allowed this uh, assault weapons issue to so dominate our children growing up that we've forgotten uh, when you talk about toxic stress, uh, just imagine how terrifying it is to be eight and realize when you go to school, you must worry about people coming in your building to kill you. Uh, And every place in America, this is now standard practice. And I think it's time for the country to say, look, we've had enough of this. Uh, There's no reason that anybody needs to be walking around uh, our communities with assault weapons meant to kill folks in war uh, and to be able to turn them on our children. And we sit by as if we're helpless. I mean, this is what I tell people, Al. Uh, I'm 67. I grew up when we worried about being blown up by nuclear weapons. And our teachers used to have a drill where we would get underneath the desk. Now, I admit, even at fourth grade, I thought, I don't know how this desk is going to help that whole radiation thing if this thing happened, but that's what they told us to do, so that's what we did. Today, this is not some foreign country. This is not some thing happening which was so, I mean, I didn't even know where Russia was, where they were going to come. This is, the guy next door might be coming into your school to kill you. Uh, I think uh, the country needs to stand up on this issue. Uh, We're creating a whole new group of kids who are 
having toxic stress over this issue of going to school, worrying about being killed. And it's time for this country to stand up and say, no, uh, we've had enough of this. We're going to protect our children. That's what you have been doing with your career. And it's yielded tremendous results for these kids. And Jeffrey, thank you for the work that you've done all these years and for your uh, for your passion and uh, wisdom and goodness. Well, well, I thank you for having me on your show. I love to do it. I've always been a big fan. Still there. <laughs> We've been talking to uh, Jeffrey Ken, founder and president of the Harlem Children's Zone. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.